Well, it's exciting to uh, uh, enter into our time of teaching this morning as we uh, continue to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. This is the uh, spirit and truth part for sure. So take your truth and with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, let's worship the Lord as we study this morning. Um, I want to say that after having completed the book of Hebrews and before we begin our journey through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, we find ourselves right in the middle of the Easter season with about two weeks before Palm Sunday. So my thought is that I would uh, take the next two Sundays to rehearse with you some thoughts about the resurrection in preparation for Easter Sunday. These truths about the resurrection that I have to share with you, you most likely know well, they're not new to you, but my guess is most of you have not thought about them lately. And those of you who have, I'm sure you're not preoccupied with them. Now if I'm right in my assumption, then I hope that something that you hear or read in the next few weeks will challenge you to be more conscientious of this precious doctrine that we call the resurrection. More than that, that you would even become preoccupied with it. The New Testament saints certainly were. Resurrection is all over the New Testament. It was, the cent- it was central to the apostles and New Testament prophets teaching and preaching. For example, beginning with Pentecost, Peter preaches to the Jews about the resurrection of Jesus, Acts 2. He and John were persecuted by the Sanhedrin for preaching uh, about the resurrection of the dead in Acts chapter 4. Luke begins his description of the unity of the early church with, and with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 4. Paul preached Jesus and the resurrection to the Greek philosophers in Athens, Acts 17. Paul was on trial specifically because of preaching the resurrection of the dead, Acts 24. And Paul witnesses, if you remember, to Agrippa and tells him about Christ's resurrection from the dead, Acts 26. Now, this doctrine is also central in the edification of the saints, not just evangelism, but edification of the saints, as the epistles demonstrate. And we are united with Jesus in the likeness of his resurrection, Paul would go on to say in Romans 6. There is, if there is no resurrection, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. That's 1 Corinthians 15. People in the church who gave, who um, have gone rather astray, claim that the resurrection had already taken place. That's 2 Timothy 2. And then the writer to the Hebrews tells us that the Old Testament saints lived in such a way that they might obtain the resurrection to eternal life, Hebrews 11.35. And finally, Peter tells us that the churches, that, uh, or tells the churches rather, and us as the church today, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 1 Peter 1.3. So no one can read the New Testament and not see that the doctrine of the resurrection, that is, 
Jesus' resurrection, the spiritual resurrection that he secured in our conversion, and the physical one that he promises us at the end times, was central to the faith of the early church. It was very central to the early church. They were really preoccupied with the resurrection. And for good reason. Without it, there is no Christianity. The resurrection makes all the difference, beloved. All the difference. Now with that in mind, let's get right to what should fill our minds about the doctrine of the resurrection. And I think that we have time for about five thought-provoking statements. Five today. We'll chase up with more next time. Number one, the resurrection is a, a historical event. The resurrection is an historical event. Let's understand and be convinced before we go any further and talk about anything else about the resurrection that the resurrection is historical. It really happened. The tomb was empty. And that truth is something that's really not up for debate, nor should we ever waver from it. Why should we make the historicity of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and the faith too, such matters of great importance. The historicity of this. Why, why is that important? Why is it so vital to Christianity to see these as grounded in historical facts? Those are good questions. The answer is very simple. If Christianity as a belief system and its truth claims were not historical, then they would be no more than imaginations of someone's mind. Everything about the faith is, is historical. Everything. It really happened. Christianity happened. It's not fiction. You see, our world likes to divorce Christianity from fact and reason and relegate it to fiction. Actually, for some, for some in some circles of Christianity, that's actually okay, if you can believe it. Whether or not there was a real man called Jesus who was crucified and who rose from the dead is really of no consequence to them. Oh no, it's, it's what the narrative represents that really matters, you see. It's a, a spiritual understanding of this that is really meaningful. But of course, that is absolute rubbish. People in our culture even see the act of believing or having faith as being detached from reason and facts, right? We hear talk about faith being blind, of people talking about taking leaps of faith, right? We know all that. Well, somebody says, here we are. We have no proof, no facts. We just need to believe. This is where our faith comes in. And that, too, is absolute rubbish. It, it's a foolish thing to invest your life in something that you cannot prove. Why would anyone want to do that? Christianity and our faith are founded upon historical facts. We have documented evidence from eyewitnesses that say there was a man called Jesus who performed many miracles and signs and wonders, taught with authority, raised Lazarus from the dead, and was raised from the dead himself and appeared to many people. Your faith, my faith, rests 
on these facts, on an empty tomb, on eyewitness accounts of Jesus' post-resurrected appearances recorded for us in the Bible. The Bible records Jesus foretelling his resurrection on several occasions. The Son of Man must suffer many things, he said, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. In John 20, we find Jesus rising from the dead, and then appearing to Mary, then to the disciples, then to John. The Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15 that his gospel is about real-life events. He recounts them in verses 3 to 8. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. As James Montgomery Boyce writes, quote, the resurrection is the historical basis upon which all other Christian doctrines are built and before which all honest doubt must falter. I like that last part. All honest doubt must falter. End quote. Let me put it to you this way. The moment we divorce Christianity from its historical roots, its historical foundation, we turn it into a fictional tale. That's it. An invention, as I say, of somebody's mind. And at that point, there is no difference between Christianity and mysticism. None whatsoever. And this is why the late Gresham Machen, who was the eminent theologian of Princeton, once explained, quote, If the saving work of Christ were confined to what he does now for every Christian, there would be no such thing as a Christian gospel an account of an event which put a new face on life. What we should have left would be simply mysticism. And mysticism is quite different from Christianity. It is the connection of the present experience of the believer with the actual historical appearance of Jesus in the world which prevents our religion from being mysticism and causes it to be Christianity. It must certainly be admitted then that Christianity does depend on something that happened. Our religion must be abandoned altogether unless at a definite point in history Jesus died as a propitiation for the sins of men. Christianity is certainly dependent upon history. End quote. What a marvelous truth. What a marvelous statement that is. He's certainly right. And I would say again then that the resurrection is a historical event. Always remember that. Number two, the resurrection then confirms absolute truth. The resurrection confirms absolute truth. 
If, as we just argued, that you cannot divorce Christianity from the resurrection, and Christianity is a belief system containing absolute truth about morality and spirituality, then the resurrection confirms this truth. It confirms it. It proves it true. Let me explain it another way. God, from the very beginning of time, gave his truth to his people. He added more truth over the centuries until the close of the New Testament. And then he finished saying all that he had to say to the churches. God has no more to say to us than what he has said in his word. Now, at every point that God gave absolute truth to his people, humanity absconded it, corrupted it, totally redefined it, and claiming it and, and claiming it's, it's, as its own, making it erroneous, it turns God's truth into error, really. Romans chapter 1 is a great example of what I'm talking about. How they know the truth, how they ignored the truth, and they exchanged the truth for a lie. That's what we're talking about. So when Jesus comes into the world, the light of the world, the embodiment of truth, the word that became flesh... He brought everyone back on point, back to the truth, to what is right, to what is holy and normal. That's what he did. He presented truth and he lived it. This is absolute truth. But the world, of course, found Jesus' words so radically different from what they knew and were familiar with that they rejected it out of hand as erroneous and even satanic. That's what the Pharisees thought. John tells us they rejected the light. So it took the resurrection for Jesus to confirm that this truth was, in fact, the true truth. <laughs> so if you say that there was no literal resurrection, then you take away truth's confirmation and with it the confidence that we have in God's word. Resurrection is the proof that everything Jesus said and is accomplishing now, in fact, is absolutely true. No question about it. Number three, the resurrection made all the difference for the twelve. I particularly like this one. Uh, it made all the difference for the twelve. You know, the twelve are really the foundation of the Christian faith. They were built actually on Christ, who is the foundation, but they were the, they were the, uh, the, the building blocks upon which we now rest, is how it's actually taught in the New Testament. Before Christ rose from the dead, we have it on New Testament record that his disciples were loyal to him. I think you would agree with that, right? They were loyal to him. They they showed their loyalty and their devotion in all kinds of ways. They supported him. They followed him. They gave up their jobs and regular lifestyles to follow him. Peter, no more than, uh, Peter on one occasion, or more than one occasion, was adamant about protecting Jesus. He also spoke on behalf of the other disciples when he declared, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, there's every reason to believe <clears throat> that the state of the mind of Jesus' disciples was not only sane, but sincere. They were sincere. 
They sincerely believed what he said. They believed in him and, and wanted to be associated with him. So, it comes as a bit of a surprise then when you first read the Gospels and find there that all of them, without exception, deserted Jesus at the worst possible moment of his life. It's rather shocking. As soon as situations looked grim, every single one of them started to doubt, then lost their confidence in Jesus and eventually ran away and hid. Peter denies the Lord three times publicly, but I think that the disciples that Jesus found on the road to Emmaus represents the, the general attitude of Jesus' followers after his death. They were defeated, disappointed, and they were hopeless. Why was it, though, that this close band of disciples didn't totally abandon ship? Did you ever wonder about that? So they followed him, they were loyal, but then they doubted and they, they took off. But they never really abandoned ship. They didn't throw Jesus and his ministry and his message overboard. They didn't go back to their respective vocations and chalk the whole thing up to a bad experience. You know, live and learn. No, it's because the resurrection made all the difference for them. That's why. Jesus appeared to them. They are convinced and forever followers. John gives evidence of this more than the synoptics do with this constant refrain that runs through his gospel that explains the difference between the apostle's state of mind and faith in Jesus before he rose and after he rose. Did you ever notice that? This constant refrain that goes through his gospel about how they felt before and how they felt after. For example, <clears throat> we read in our scripture reading this morning from John chapter 2, it was the cleansing of the temple. And at the very end of this very shocking event, John gives this editorial comment in verse 20. He says, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Isn't that interesting? The implication is, well, they thought they believed before they kind of heard him and wanted what he said to be true. When push came to shove, though, they doubted and they took off. But when the resurrection happened, it not only sealed their faith, but it sealed their confidence. They remembered, oh yeah, we remember when he said that. We remember when he did that. And how that's all prophesied in the scriptures, in the Old Testament. That's right. And they believed it. And they really believed it this time. John notes again during his account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified. This is, of course, after he rose from the dead. Then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things for him. Whether these guys were saved before or after the resurrection of Jesus, it's hard to determine. I don't think we can say for sure. 
But either way, there's no denying that the resurrection is what made all the difference for them, right? It made all the difference. After seeing Jesus risen, most of them would would go on to be martyred for their faith. No more running, no more hiding, no more embarrassment, fear, or, or uncertainty. No, the resurrection made these men spiritual giants, and they went on to fight the good fight. Number four, the resurrection should be, should be the preoccupation of every true follower of Jesus. It should be our preoccupation. This doctrine of the resurrection should be something that, that we don't just visit during the Easter season. We should be preoccupied with the resurrection life that the resurrection and life gave to us. <coughs> Excuse me. We are who we are, beloved, because of Jesus' resurrection. It defines us. And this is the tenor of the New Testament as well. For example... The resurrection of Messiah was actually prophesied, and you know this, and taught in the Old Testament, very clearly. Peter refers to King David in Psalm 16, which we read at the beginning of our worship service this morning. It's in Acts 2.31. And he says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. A messianic psalm. The, re the resurrection to eternal life comes only by Jesus Christ as well. We know this to be true as well. John eleven twenty five, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Implying that that person would be resurrected as well. Dies and lives again. The resurrection was the core of the apostles' message. Jesus led the way in this when he appeared to the disciples of the road to Emmaus. He opened up the Old Testament teaching regarding the resurrection of Christ. The disciples would later focus on this aspect of the faith in their evangelism. This is what dominated their evangelism was the central part of their gospel. Acts 4.33, with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Acts 4.2, religious leaders were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Acts 17.18, Paul preached the resurrection to the Epicurean Stoic philosophers in the Areopagus. Acts 24, 21, Paul points out that one of his traits that he was being accused of, uh, in one of his trials, rather, that he was being accused of preaching the resurrection. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today, he said. In Acts 2, 27, Peter preached in Jerusalem, proclaiming to his Jewish audience, following Pentecost, that, again, King David of old, had written of Christ's resurrection. And then he quotes Psalm 16. It proves that Jesus is who he claims to be, this resurrection. It proves it. Romans 1, 4. 
And it was declared to he was declared to be the Son of God in the power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus could do what he did and said what he said, make the kinds of promises that he made, all because of the resurrection. You might say that the resurrection will be everyone's experience, and each resurrected body will be outfitted for one of two destinations. We read in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, For an hour is coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The issue, you see, is not whether everyone will be resurrected at the end of time. Everyone will be. The issue is to where. The Bible is clear that those who embrace Jesus Christ are resurrected to eternal life with God, while those who reject him in this life are outfitted to spend eternity in a condemned state. Very clear. Beloved, our faith rests on the resurrection of Christ. And because that's true, because it's a historical fact, that should embolden us to live our faith aggressively. That's why I'm saying it should be a preoccupation with us. For example, one of the goals of the Christian faith is to know the power of Christ's resurrection. This is what Paul says, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection then share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. In other words, Paul wants to experience the powerful resurrected life that is often demonstrated in the midst of suffering. And it should be our goal as well to know the resurrected life, to live the resurrected life. There are too many Christians out there who who seem to be dead. They're supposed to be living the resurrected life. Another goal is to live in light of its reality as well. To long for the full resurrection. In the next verse, Philippians 3.11, Paul says that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What's he mean? Well, it's his way of saying that he longs for the day when he will be resurrected bodily, when he is fully redeemed, and that leads, of course, to another fact, Christ's resurrection secures the hope of eternal life that born-again believers have. It's, it's our security. It's our guarantee. First Peter 1.3, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is to say, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our eternal life, our, our own resurrection. He was the first fruits of many to follow, Paul says in Romans 8. And in Romans 6, Paul says that we have been united with him in, in his death. And if that's the case, we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection. Well, is it a preoccupation with you? Are you preoccupied with the resurrection, with the resurrected life? Now and to come. The early church was. 
it was. And they were motivated by this. Fifth and final statement before we wrap this up. Let me say that there are many Christian doctrines that stand on the resurrection. Stand on the resurrection. You could say they stand or fall on whether the resurrection is true, right? The resurrection is not true. None of these doctrines are true. They all stand on the veracity of the resurrection. The doctrine of the resurrection is that one doctrine that holds everything that we believe together. It's like the glue of our faith. Without it, everything falls. All bets are off. Jesus' birth is no longer a unique birth. It's just somebody who was born in a stable. Big deal. His death would be an ordinary death. Too bad this guy just died for nothing, right? Another one who suffers on a cross in shame. Oh no, but because of the resurrection, the birth and the death of Christ is unique. It is significant, more so than any birth and any death. This was James, James Boyce's view. In fact, he provides a list of, uh, in his helpful work, Foundations of the Christian Faith, of all the doctrines that stand on the resurrection. I'd like to rehearse them with you now, just very quickly. We're not going to get into all, a lot of this, but here's what he says. And, and, and again, it just goes to show how important the resurrection is, the doctrine, how foundational it is. The resurrection proves the existence of God and that he is the kind of God that Jesus preached. That's the existence of God. Without the resurrection, we cannot believe in the existence of God. It establishes, that is the resurrection, the doctrine of our Lord's deity. Jesus claimed to be equal with God. And his resurrection was God's way of substantiating that claim. Now, this is why Peter said in Acts 2.28 that Jesus claimed to be the Lord of life, very God himself, and proved it by giving the Jews a sign of Jonah the prophet. Do you remember? He says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Prophecy. And he would rise. So Jesus' resurrection proves that he is God. And it proves that God is there. It also establishes, Boyce says, the Bible's teaching on justification. Justification rests on the resurrection. All who believe in Christ are justified from all sin. And Jesus claimed that he would atone specifically for the sins of God's people. Those are the very words recorded in Matthew 1, verse 22. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then later in 20, chapter 20, verse 28, the idea that Jesus became a ransom for these specific people is mentioned here. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The many are, of course, God's elect. And when the time came and Jesus was crucified, the sacrifice was offered and atonement was made for them. But the only way we know that his sacrifice was acceptable to God and indeed did redeem a chosen people of God 
was by Christ's resurrection from the dead. Without it, none of that matters. None of it is true. Boyce also says that it established the Bible's teaching on sanctification. In other words, Jesus' resurrection proves that Christians can have a life that's pleasing to God. The Bible teaches us that God is holy and that human beings are sinful. And as a result, sinful human beings do not have the ability to please God in anything they do. In fact, they are at enmity with him. Everything that they touch is corrupted by their sin, and there can be no human victory over sin. But if Jesus is resurrected and is living now, well, then he can live his life out in those who believe in him and give them the status of being holy. Apostle Paul explains how this happens in Ephesians 1. Listen to verses 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places? Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Doctrine of sanctification is validated by the resurrection. Boyce also says that it establishes the Bible's teaching on eternal life. <clears throat> eternal life. Jesus proves by, by rising from the dead and conquering death that death is no longer the end of this life of the believer, or the second death for that matter. Jesus defeated death in the fullest sense possible, which is the last enemy. He put it to death, and it can no longer have claim on those who are born again. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. What this promise presupposes is the disciples' own resurrection from the grave. And Paul confirms this when he writes to the Thessalonians. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Bottom line is that the believer is united with Christ by faith in such a way that if Christ rose from the dead, the believer must also. If we were united to him in his death, then it stands to reason that we shall also be united with him in his resurrection. It also establishes the Bible's teaching on judgment, on judgment. I told you that all the doctrines really essentially stand or fall on the resurrection. One judgment, when Jesus rose, his own teaching on the final judgment that would come on upon all those who reject the gospel was sealed was sealed. It's going to happen. This was Paul's message on Mars Hill. Do you remember? He said, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Many in the world today, and certainly most people in America, do not believe that there is a final judgment waiting at the end of time. And I'm not talking 
just about irreligious people. Many in churches, believe it or not, and church leaders along with them, don't really know what to think about a judgment, a final judgment. You really never hear it talked about or preached from pulpits around here anymore as if the doctrine somehow went out of style. Some leading so-called Christian personalities have even published on the subject, arguing that there will be no judgment. Rob Bell, his book that came out years ago called Love Wins, argues that no one will be punished in what the Bible calls the lake of fire for eternity because God's love is so powerful it will win out in the end, even in the case of those that the world itself had deemed to be wicked, like Hitler. God's love is so great that he will love everyone into the kingdom at the end of time. And that sounds nice, certainly very popular, what most people would like to hear. It certainly would sell a lot of books, but it's absolutely false. And in fact, anyone who would knowingly so twist the truth of God's word in a way that would promote error and misrepresent the holiness of God, is himself condemned. Subject of judgment or punishment or justice can be either zealously embraced or zealously, zealously rejected in this country, depending on the climate of our country. I want you to think about this for a second. Even the idea of no punishment, but universal salvation for everyone without exception should tell us something. Of course, that is the way that the world would want it, right? Yes, let's invent a God who loves everyone regardless of their sins. Everyone can live the way that he and she wants and still be assured of a heaven at the end of time, all because God love, God's love will simply overlook their sin and their injustices and their offenses to him. Sure, they would want that. The interesting thing is that this is not the way that the majority of Americans, unbelievers, by the way, <clears throat> want their country run. At least, at least not yet, right? The majority of Americans seem to have no problem calling for justice at the thought of some criminal who is set free, roaming around, when they have when they are convinced that he is guilty of some heinous crime. Let me give you an illustration. Years and years ago, I remember when the late David Brednoy, maybe some of you remember him, he was the voice of WBZ Talk Radio, a somewhat controversial figure himself, by no means a believer. And he would bring up the topic of capital punishment every so often. Now, he was a firm believer in it, and he was prepared to make a logical argument for it. And every time he broached the subject on the radio with his listening audience, he would be barraged with angry callers, people who disagreed with it so vehemently that they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even, uh, they were almost un unintelligible, screaming so much. Of course, they provided no good reason for their for their view. And if you listen for any length of time, you would see how people were so emotionally charged up about this topic that there was no reasoning with them at all. 
None whatsoever. Oftentimes he had to end the call himself. It was wrong in their eyes because they just simply hated it. That's it. Didn't feel right to them. Now he would call people on being irrational all the time. What's even more interesting, however, than this is that people who are led by their emotions against this particular stand on capital punishment were given to great mood swings that would at times bring a change in their position. Small wonder. There was a time I remember later on in his career, Brednoy's career, when a crime had been committed that gained national recognition. A man murdered a child, but the evidence that would condemn him was manipulated by his clever lawyers and introduced reasonable doubt as to whether the man was actually guilty, when, of course, he was, and it was obvious to everyone. People were outraged. And during one of Brednoy's talk shows, there, were, there was a flood of calls calling for this man's blood. All of a sudden, capital punishment was on the table, and the majority was in favor of it in this man's case. Isn't that something? As I've already mentioned, there are various subjects of which judgment is one that people in our country will either embrace or reject depending on the context, depending on how they feel. We know that, right? Feelings are preeminent today. In the Enlightenment period, it was reason. In 2022, it's emotions. And usually the context is about how it will benefit them in some way. Whether or not capital punishment is embraced across the United States, certainly one thing is for sure. Most Americans do have a sense of justice. They do. You need to remember this when you talk to unbelievers. See, we, we do want our justice system to be just in the way it practices law. At least half the country does. And we'll call out our legal system or call it to account when it seems to be lax in this area. That's what appeals are for. However, when it comes to God and his grand accounting at the end of time, when all human beings will stand before his throne and receive recompense for what they have done. People are quite adamant about dismissing this. But, beloved, if we expect human courts to be just, would we not expect a holy and just God to be infinitely more just? Well, whether people dismiss it or not makes no difference. It will come. God will hold those who have rejected his son to account, and Jesus' resurrection guarantees that. So ends the list that Jim Boyce provides for us, a helpful one. Let me say by way of conclusion, what is it? What is it that the world has to offer when it comes to when it comes to immortality? Nothing really. You, you can immortalize your name and your image if you become famous and die young. That's about it. Then there is religion, belief systems, philosophies, all different, all advancing something that each believes to be right. 
But in the end, there is absolutely no proof that what any one of them is saying is true when none has a leader that has ever risen from the dead. The best that the world can offer is no better than what the human mind can imagine. And all of it still falls short of the truth. That is God's word. Only God's word has the words of eternal life that will secure eternal life. And the proof, the guarantee that it is real and true and right is that Jesus rose from the dead. An historical fact that cannot be denied.